And before we start, if you could say your first and last name to make sure I pronounce it right. And if you'd like to give pronouns, give pronouns. It's Sunny Singh and it's she and her. Well, hello and welcome to Shelf Healing, UCL's bibliotherapy podcast. Thank you. I'm your host, Rebecca Markwick. Our guest today is Professor Sunny Singh. Professor Singh is a professor of creative writing and inclusion in the arts at London Metropolitan University. She was born in India and grew up as a global citizen, gaining degrees from the USA, India and Spain. Before joining academia, she worked in the private sector at a large number of countries, including Mexico and Chile. Professor Singh has published three critically renowned fiction novels, numerous non-fiction and creative non-fiction pieces, and her work has been everywhere. Her work explores groundbreaking contemporary topics, and her research interests include decolonization, social justice, equality, and representation. Professor Singh is also the founder of the Chalak Prize for Book of the Year by a Writer of Colour, its sister award, the Jalak Children's and YA Prize, founded last year in 2020, and the, so I'm going to try it again, the Jalak Art Residency for Artists of Colour. I'm sorry, I feel like I butchered that three times over. I apologise. When we talk about it later, you can make it sound fabulous. So, uh, I went with, you know, published, that all your work is everywhere because it is. It, it really, really is. Well, well, thank you for having me on. I think having my work everywhere sounds really fabulous, probably <laughs> not. But um, I think I'm increasingly turning into that that writer, thanks to mostly the Jalak Prize, um, who people know but never read. So it's kind of like, hmm, in some ways, it's, it's a kind of a weird sort of fame, you know, a writer's fame, apparently, and I think it was Rusty who said it, is the best kind because you can get a table at a fashionable restaurant, but nobody knows you or not. He did say this before the whole mess, the Rusty affair started, if I remember correctly. But mine is quite quite interesting. I could I get recognized in places I'd rather not. I don't think I could get a table at a fashionable restaurant. Um, but nobody reads me. So yeah, everywhere oh. is, uh, is 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 problematic. <laughs> Ah, well, you have your, your most recent book is obviously a nonfiction book about Indian celebrity. I love that Indian superstar. I mean, that, superstar, then. yes. Yeah, I'm always I'm one of those those because I'm an academic. I think I get really pedantic about things like okay, there are celebrities, then there are movie stars. These are yeah. not the same things. No, um, <laughs> and then there's other people who are famous, not the same thing. No. So yeah, but he's he's particularly interesting because yeah, he's he's been on screens for now fifty two years. Really? And he's been a superstar for most of that half a century, which is pretty extraordinary. I mean, he's kind of slowed down and you could kind of take off the first first few years of his career, but that's still an enormous amount of time to just mm. be kind of all over everywhere to use your work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true so, yeah. it's true so our first official question is is nice and easy i say do you feel that reading is therapeutic um yes <laughs> absolutely uh, somebody who spends most of their time not having enough time to read and i feel kind of bad saying it because last year has been difficult and anxiety inducing and 
worrying and there's been grief, ambiguous and particular. But there's been something really special where as long as really I could get books, I don't I don't really care about going out or venturing out or doing anything. And um, it was a useful reminder of that little kid, me, who just looked forward to the summer break, summer holidays, not because it was something extraordinary was going to happen, but just because I had collected all the books I was going to read. And I had spoken to the librarian so I could go get all the books I had made a list of through the whole year and be there every day and say, okay, can I take these now? Um, And it felt like that. I felt like that little kid who just had lots of time to read. And it was amazing. Yeah, it's wonderful. So what kind of books did you read or do you read? What do you reach for? I read I read everything, which is perhaps, you know, my mother would say, this is a child who read stuff, who would go through the ingredients list and tomato counts. Um, it's just like, if it's, a, if it's words, I'll read it. But last year I went through doing a lot of, you know, I was just, I wanted to read about um, cinema, partly because it's something I work with, something I'm looking forward to, you know, towards a book um, I'm putting together. I did a lot of nonfiction, um, also because I'm finalizing a collection of short stories, and those are overturning the the tropes and conventions of the traditional war story. So I was doing a lot of reading there. I was doing a lot of research. I was doing a lot of kind of all kinds of stuff. Of course, I'm not a judge for the Telic Prize, but I just love when the books come mm-hmm. in because I, I just like, I just go, I read every one of them <laughs> because I'm just like, oh my God, this is so amazing. All these books come to me. Um, so I do did the Telic Prize reading just to, to know how amazing the books were. And then I do two things. I have... For my switch off the brain, I love Georgette Hare. Yes, we love Georgette Hare on this podcast. We have a whole episode on her. It's great because it's great. It's just it's easy. It's fun, but most of all, it's somebody I love the way she uses English. Now, English isn't my first language, but it's it's playful and funny, and I just enjoy that that rhythm of of the language, the way Mm. she uses it. So I read a lot of that. I read a lot of poetry, which was also nice, um, although primarily in Hindi and Urdu, so not quite. So it's quite strange. You know, your mind goes in these weird sort of compartmentalized way. If you speak more than one language, you do certain things in one language and the others in, in another. And in my case, um, certain anxieties seem to work better or are, are more manageable if I'm reading in that language. Oh, that's interesting. So... When the whole thing with the massive, horrific wave in spring in India, where it was, I think, no family in India that I know was untouched and it was just this horrific time, I couldn't read in English. So I was just reading an enormous amount of poetry. And um, and it was all in Hindustani, it was all in Hindi and Urdu because it just kind of kept me somehow together Mm. I've only obviously I cannot speak Hindu or Urdu uh, but I have read 
some very famous poems, you know, in translation. Do you feel like they, they translate well or not really? Um, not, I think, but you know, I work in other languages yeah. as well. And I think, um, so I can't write in Hindi, even though that is technically my first language or Hindustani. Um, and that is a linguistic thing, by the way. I'm making a kind of a political choice to call it Hindustani rather than Hindi and Urdu, which was which is a kind of a bifurcation that is a politically loaded one. Um, Urdu is in its current form primarily Persian and Arabic, and most in Pakistan, especially more Arabized. Um, Hindi has been Sanskritized, but the the lingo as we learn it, kind of in a quotidian way through the Northern Indian belt is Hindustani because it draws from multiple languages, including Turkish, Persian, um, Kariboli, um, Arabic. I mean, it's just this incredibly rich vocabulary and we mix and match. But there is this, obviously, there's a political, politically loaded way of how it's used and how it's in some ways given a sectarian color. So I prefer to call it Hindustani mm-hmm. because my favorite writers are from sort of mid-20th century and they tend to use the language more the way I use it. But weirdly enough, I can't write in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and strangely enough, I started writing um, flash fiction when the during the second wave or during the spring you know for in india the wave um, which was the second wave but i also write in spanish and i can't translate it it doesn't for me it makes no sense um but i i read it in translation constantly because i don't speak lots of languages um but there is a kind of trust that the translator knows what they're doing. So I don't know. In my mm. head, there are very clear categories for the languages I speak. And then everything else I read in any of the languages I speak, I don't particularly have um, preferences. So I've read most most of the most of the Russian literature I know, I first read in Hindi. Ooh. Most of um, pretty much all the Korean literature I know and Chinese literature I know, I read in English. But most of the, especially the canonical classical French literature, I read I read first in Spanish. So it's just, it's this weird muddle. I, I can read other, other translations as long as it's a language I speak, that's fine. But I can't do it for myself. Oh, that's really interesting. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> are, there, are there any books that you return to over and over again, like comfort food, but a book? Well, I think hair is a good case in point, right? Georgia hair yeah. is, is is a great comfort food. Um, I always, I, I think there's things I go back to, probably because, um, so I go back to Grand Sophie a lot because that's my favorite hair, partly because it's um, also a really strange thing. So um, my parents had an arranged marriage. And my father was in the army, so they spent the first couple of years just not really living together or not really seeing each other very often. And so he would, he wooed my mother by giving her Georgia hair novels. And so we have this whole collection of, of novels that have these really beautiful um, 
messages from my dad to my mom. And somewhere as a teenager, I found a copy of Grand Sophie, and that was the earliest novel that he'd given her. So in somewhere for me, it's a weird kind of a comfort food. It I, it has as much to do with the, the book as it does with the circumstances around it. But it's just like, oh, this is this is how we got to know each other. What a wonderful idea. I love that. And other than that, uh, there's the complete other opposite. Um, I go for me, weirdly, comfort food is Inferno. Mm. So I probably read it once a year, not entirety. I'll just come dip in and out. I decided that I was going to read it through the pandemic. I'm sort of counter four, and I'm just still kind of chewing it. So it happens in bits and pieces. So I read it and put it away and then sits next to my bedside table. It's comforting in a very, very different way. Um, Definitely no nice story about it. But um, I wouldn't recommend sending that to to woo someone with. No, but on the other hand, you know, I'm still in touch with my doctor professor at university who that uh, that's now 30 plus years and who in so many ways gave me the love mm. the writer and the text and um I will you know with my last novel which was Hotel Arcadia a few years ago when I started writing I was like I need to email you <laughs> will you do so we had like this sort of an online tutorial 20 something years <laughs> after I had left university going do you remember and will you explain so you know there, there's there is a story there as well but it's quite sort of personal and yeah. odd that you know <laughs> it still holds in the back of my head that you can still give me an answer yeah and I feel like books have a, a very special place in those sorts of relationships you know Romantic relationships, friend relationships, platonic relationships, relationships uh-huh. over huge swathes of time um, that just one book can. Yeah. And, you, you know, and it's quite strange because I agree. And I think there's another relationship. And I was quite strange because, of course, that, that horrific story from Oxford's just hit this afternoon around, you know, if you want to call it Me Too at Oxford, but um, which, by the way, I have no links to. So. Um, but that is a problem with academia. It's not, you know, particular to a university. And I was reading it and going, you know, there is an extraordinarily precious, fragile relationship, because as am I with my academic hat, that we also have with students. And it can go, it can be really nurturing and wonderful, which is what I feel about my professor, because, you know, he immediately wrote back going, after 20 years, I've had, I've got a new student from India and I'm looking forward to having, having her in class because we would have these slanging matches in our seminars um, because I'd be like, that, 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 and he'd be like, and that's a mentoring nurturing relationship that even though I haven't seen him in 30 years it stays it's around this particular book and then I was reading it today um and I kind of feel I really feel bad because that's 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 a relationship that just is completely toxic and that can go increasingly toxic because Mm. all the elements of the abuse of power are there embedded I mean I suppose mm. it's the case with many relationships, but um, but it just feels like it should be a lot more sacred and special. But you know, so yeah. I complete tangent. Oh, there you go. 
I write about I write a lot about <laughs> gender issues and yeah. sexual violence. Yeah. So <laughs> that's why we're talking to you. That's why I was so excited when you agreed to come on the podcast. So you are a professor of creative writing and inclusion in the arts. Do you find writing creatively to be therapeutic to you? And do you find that helping other people learn to write creatively is also therapeutic in some sort of way? Feel free to say no and to rip my question to pieces. No, no, I don't think that's fair. I, I don't <laughs> think I would rip your question to pieces. I think it's now that you've, you've asked it, I'm just thinking it through. Yes. I don't, I don't find creative, I don't write, I don't find fiction therapeutic. I find most of my fiction is written from a place of distress, um, anger, uh, frustration, rage. Um, it's written constantly, um, probably because it's so politically engaged. It, it always, it's, you know, it's, it's blood and blood, sweat and tears in many ways because it just takes everything out. Um, I find academic writing and non-creative non-fiction therapeutic. Um, partly why I think I tweet so much because it's it's a very quick way of getting that idea out. Um, with academic writing, obviously, have, it has its own process of substantiating and you know citations and so on. But in some ways, it works more within the intellectual field than an emotional, embodied, physical field. Um, so it's, I find that there, sort of that stepping, that's taking a step away um, from the creative, emotional side or an embodied side therapeutic. And I guess that's also linked with, with teaching. So it is Alice, it's, I think it's Alice Walker who, you know, it's just, if I'm going to get the citation wrong, I might as well. I'm sure I got the Rushdie citation wrong. Um, I think we're allowed to not have perfectly academically cited podcasts. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, she said, that, that, you know, there's there's something along the lines of paraphrasing. The purpose, you know, the whole point is to free yourself of liberation. Is so you not on, you free yourself so you can free others. And and I've always found that a really powerful idea. So the idea of, for me, of being able to write is has always been extraordinarily powerful because to tell your story or tell a story is an exercise of power, but to tell your story when, for whichever reason, you are in some way minoritized or marginalized makes that power more more potent in some ways so in for me to teach creative writing fits into that it's about sort of saying well i've done this i can show you how to do it and so you can tell your story and then that will be more of us telling our stories and then more of us are liberated um so i guess that part i find you know therapeutic because that's more important you're a, a really strong proponent of representation within literature. Do you feel that enough progress is being made in this area? Is it going in the right direction? Feel free to go wild with your thoughts. Well, 
gosh, that's a really tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. Because, um, so here's the thing. I actually start by going, why do we need representation? Why is it important? It's not a kind of a, a checkbox exercise of going, oh, we have so many people and so many people and so many people. For me, it's it's not even a moral case, but it's it's a lived ethical, political, social, human case. The way we recognize each other's humanity is if we know somebody's story. When we go on that first date, we start by telling each other stories. When we have anniversaries, you know, we go back to that restaurant or that place or that park because that becomes part of our joint, you know, united story. It's very curious because when relationships start to go wrong, that same story gets retold and rewritten in order to break ourselves away. So when I look at stories and when I look at representation in culture, I start with the fact that we need to hear each other's stories because we can't live together while we pretend one set of stories are important and the other stories don't need to be heard. Or one set of people can tell all the stories because they're somehow better at it. And it's like, that's not how we build a community. That's not how we build a culture that's going to be sustainable, that's going to be related, that's going to be ethical. So for me, representation's not just about the number of books that are published and who gets commissioned. It's about who we want to be and who we want to become. When I start from that point, no, we're not doing enough. But also, you know, that's not just a criticism because, yes, we, I can go through their numbers and tell you this is not good enough. We need to do much better. All parts of cultural production need to do better publishing, TV, films, et cetera, et cetera. We can go down the list. But here's an idea. We will never do enough. And the reason for that is the more people who are liberated and more stories we know, the more we will be able to identify which stories are missing. So freedom isn't the kind of state you kind of reach at. It's not a pie. It's an ever-expanding circle. And we, that's the good side that, that, you know, instead of sort of going, oh, we've now hit that mark and we're done, we should start by going, we're never going to hit that mark. But that's the good point, because that means more people. We, we are striving constantly, forever towards greater justice. That doesn't seem like a bad thing. No. I love that. I love your pie analogy as well. I love it when stuff like that happens. Well, we could have said cupcakes, but I'm like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> it's, it's the evening when we're recording this. So <laughs> cupcakes feels a bit more of a midday idea. Mm. That's lovely. Kind of on the back of that, is there a single book that sort of profoundly affected you in this kind of... Oof. I know, throwing the Gosh. hard questions at you late in the evening. Well, I don't know because so many of them did. So intellectually, you know, sort of in that kind of 
early 20s way. Um, there's, there's a series of, there's a collection, it's I think 92, 93, and it's a collection of um, short essays. I think it was a, it comes, if I remember correctly, from um, a conference or something, and it's called Critical Fictions. And it's a whole lot of writers just talking about their politics and why their fiction is what it is. And I constantly go back to that because I remember finding it and reading it while I was just starting my first novel as a 20-something. And it just went, wow, this is amazing. This is like real stuff. So that um, bell hooks you know, about on everything she has to say about pedagogy, everything she has to say about liberation and education and how we go through that. But I would even go further back. Um, So I grew up in India during the Cold War. That's where I was a child. And we got books mostly, I mean, British books were, you know, it's the 60s, early 70s. They were expensive, not exactly found everywhere. We had some. We had American books and Indian books, and then we had these enormous amount of Soviet books, which were translated into English and Hindi, and they were cheap, but they were beautifully made. And have I still have some um, sitting at home. And there was one book which I absolutely loved, and it was. It's called The Three Fat Men. And it's a children's book about these three men who are enormously powerful and rich and they control the the city and they're quite awful. And this entire thing is about how a bunch of people who are quite marginalized, there's a circus acrobat, there's a doctor, there's a little girl, and they basically organize an overthrow of the regime. I'm not sure if maybe that might be the book that influenced me most. <laughs> so like, oh, you can you can get rid of people like that. That sounds like yeah, a great so, book. I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt that out. Sounds yeah, great. So I think that would be that would have to be my my top three influencer books. Nice. Now you created the Shalak Prize in 2016 for works published within the UK by writers of colour. First off, how hard is it to pick judges for a prize with such varied and fabulous entries? It isn't the judges that are worrying. Although I have to say there's a whole, you know, so we always look. It's a jury of peers. So everybody who judges is a writer themselves. That's the starting point. But I think one of the most extraordinary things that I've learned over the last years since the first year of the prize is how incredibly rich and diverse and complex the readings are and that our judges bring to it and I think some of it is just that if you don't see yourself in books or you don't see your stories told in the big books you by default go and find other things. So you read, let's say, the canon, but you also seek out other things. And that also means that I just kind of sit back and listen to the conversations that the judges have at the meetings. And it's like a masterclass in literature each time. And I'm just going, 
okay, how, how does this work? And it's Ghanaian and Chilean and Ukraine and, and Nigeria and Singapore and Malaysia. And you're just going, there is this enormous wealth of knowledge that our judges bring. And that's really extraordinary. Um, so, no, it isn't the judges that is difficult to find uh, because they're very good at what they do and they, they bring so much, such an expertise. Um, I think there's, I think that the tricky part is that we're so few that there's always, it always feels like, you know, I look at it and go, oh, look, they're in there. And, and it just feels like, um, um, it's, are we running a kind of slight risk of nepotism because I know every person whose book has been submitted? Um, and that worries me always because it's like, is, should I, you know, kind of, but also all of us, not just, you know, we mentor people, we're friends with people, we are informally, or we are colleagues. And it just feels at one, the good side is it's truly a jury of your peers. The other side is like all of us are in that kind of place where we all know each other. So it's, it can get tricky. I think that's that's the, mm. the harder balance. Um, we've never had a question about it because I think the, the, the discussions are always so rich and so and the ways in which the decisions are made by the judges is always kind of awe-inspiring. But I always wonder because it's like, am I being seen as a kind of a nepotistic person because all the books come in and I'm like, oh, look, and, and that person, and I've tweeted about them and I've talked to them. And I'm just like, yeah, will somebody kind of say, oh, well, that one um, is there because, you know, I saw Sunny tweet um, <laughs> or I saw them kind of go out and have drinks. And that's just really, that, that. I mean, that's probably me and my sort of Caesar's wife must appear to be Joss, you know, kind of logic. Let's not, let's not go there, you know, let's not be the Caesar's wife. <laughs> I think it's also a it's a thing that happens when you become very widely read and embedded within literature. I feel like it's very easy to know everybody because that's what you do. It's like I know loads of people in the horse industry, which is I've worked in the horse industry for years and years and years. And every time I watch the Olympics, I'm like, oh, I know that horse. I know that rider. And everyone looks at me like I'm crazy. And I think it's just because that's, it's my niche. And I feel like because your niche is the Shalak Prize and you're an inclusion professor and a creative professor, creative, creative writing professor, and you're so active on the social media that you just come into contact with everyone. And I'd be worried if you, you didn't know <laughs> well, all of these fabulous writers. <laughs> I mean, the good thing is there's enough of us out there and there's more of us coming up each, yeah. each year and each day that I don't know people. So that's Ooh. the nice part. So, um, I mean, what I tend to do is it, it's it's really hard around this time because books start coming in mm. to the submission. And I'm, I always kind of do this, this thing where I'm like, OK, I've read that one because it's a friend and I was really excited about it. Or it was a writer that I love and I'm really I was really excited. So I already went out and bought it and read it. And then it's kind of like, OK, for each book by somebody I know. I'm going to then read somebody who's completely new because that just keeps me open and thinking about what else is happening. And it's just so I kind of alternate my reading back and forth. But 
most of the times, and this is the nice part for me, I mean, Teleprice has been a learning curve for me. Most of the times for each book by a writer that I know, there are three or four that are brand new. So I discover new writers every year. And, and that's a good part. Yeah. And I don't, I'm, I mostly don't know them. And then I start following them. And start <laughs> them but, you know. That's what we love to do, isn't it? And also last yeah. year was the first year for the, the children's and the young adults version. Yes. Which must have been fun. I hope you had lots of picture books come in. We did. We did have a picture books. Um, not as many as we'd like. Oh. But, you know, we, I mean... We still had 70-something entries across the age range. It's not perfect, it's, but it's a good start, especially because it is, it's a sign, you know, I think the children's side of the industry is trying to move forward and make changes, so it's good. So I'm not going to, you know, knock down. I have a niece, and she's three, and because of her... I know all about picture books. Um, so I was kind of like, wait, that one isn't in. So I was just like, hello, can you send it in, please? <laughs> because a three-year-old kind of monitored it and decided that that was published and why it hasn't, you know. So it was, a, it was a, yeah. So I have a sort of a research market assistant who's three and ensures um, that the books come in. It's brilliant. Now, final question, Professor Singh, is going to be the hardest one, and I apologise in advance. But if you could suggest one book that you think embodies everything that you love about literature, etc., for people to read, what one book would it be? Oh, that's just really hard because that's just like I'm just like in. Well, first of all, the answer would change every day. See, I love asking this question. So that's not saying very much at all. You can have more than one if, if you'd like more than one. Okay, so I'm going to start with mostly because I've been teaching it this, you know, this, these past weeks. Um, I'm going to start with Harun and Sea of Stories by Salman Rushdie. Um, and it's what he apparently wrote for his son after the fatwa and the whole thing kicked off. And what I like about it is that it's a very simple way of explaining to somebody why telling stories is important and why it's important that we continue to tell stories and tell lots and lots and lots of different stories. Um, and it's, you know, at the heart, yes, there is a philosophical aspect to making a case for freedom of speech and freedom of, and representation. And, you know, there is a lot of complexity to it, but it's also just a fun book. And... Thankfully, because it's rusty, it's even though it's written in in English, he draws from the Islamic traditions. He draws from the the Hindu Sanskrit traditions. It's sort of you know the vocabulary is Hindustani mixed with everything else you can think of, and it just makes for for a fun read, at least for me. Not sure my my students would agree, but. <laughs> I'm sure they'll come round. They've already just started. Well, it's a first year module. <laughs> so they are fresh into the, into the degree. So we can hope. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, I'm going to try when I'm editing to uh, 
write down all of the authors and books you've suggested and pop them in the show notes and links to everything that that needs ah, okay. linking to like the the Jalak prize and i'm sorry my pronunciation Thank is you. terrible oh, don't worry that's fine you'd have thought all those years of international boarding school would would help with languages and i still can only speak one language and a tiny bit of german yeah i think i think it's just like i think i'm hard to say do you know what it's to do with when you start learning it and how much you use it. Yeah. I think it's just, yeah. Um, there are languages I still can't function in because I can't say things that, you know, I can't speak mm. um, with the appropriate accent um, or say the sounds. Mm. But but I can muddle along with more of them, mostly because I think it's an early, early age thing. And in India, we grew up bilingual, at least, if not more, um, without even including English. So I think yeah. it's just messy messiness of it yeah i'm all for people learning more languages yes definitely i have a friend who can speak about seven and i always feel really incompetent because <laughs> she can speak japanese and it makes me very i have lots of japanese friends and it makes me sad because i just can't hear the tonal shifts i just can't i just can't i've tried yeah, yeah. My, my niece is very amusing because she's she's three and for the moment she's traveling well but she's she's able to kind of imitate accents and imitate languages because it's just kind of in her head that just makes sense yeah so but it's very interesting to watch somebody from day zero Mm. do it so she just it just doesn't even occur to her um although she's learning to recognize that they're different languages oh that's cool um so that's quite funny she she went to her mom and said do you know that language you speak i.e hindi Nobody speaks it. <laughs> and her mom was like, well, your aunt speaks it. She's like, yes, yes, yes. But no, and like 1.3 billion, that's lots of people speak it in India. And she just went, yeah, well, that's fine. But here, they live in Brazil, here, nobody speaks. <laughs> <laughs> and my sister was just like, wow, thank you for noticing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's a weird kind of thing that our, our brains do. So, you know, she's obviously picked up that. You know, some there has to be a level of instrumentality mm. to things, but there you go. It's magic. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and giving your time. I've absolutely loved chatting to you. Thank you. It was just fun, and um, I look forward to it. And um, go to India. I hope you enjoyed listening to the fabulous Professor Sunny Singh on this week's episode. I had so much fun chatting to her. We chatted so much about Silk as well uh, that I had to cut off the end because it's not really bibliotherapy. But uh, I'm going to put a link to Fab India, which is a fabulous silk company in India, in case anyone wants to check out some fabric. Please, please, please go and read Professor Singh's books. They're fabulous. She's a beautiful writer. I highly recommend them. Thanks, as always, to Nicholas Patrick for our music and to Nat Bolsh for our transcript this week. Please check us out on Twitter at Shelf underscore Healing and stay with us next week. We've got another episode of Shelf Healing. Shelf Healing.